<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey, so as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert, we're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised, press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. just watch we just watched moonlighting a moonlighting episode called the dream sequence always rings twice <laughs> starring sybil shepherd and bruce willis this came out in 1985 is, is the uh, fourth episode of season two should we talk a little bit about uh, moonlighting and what the premise of the program was yeah why don't you go yeah get, get off to it <laughs> shed some moonlight on this situation uh, Sybil Shepard played Maddie Hayes, uh, a wealthy and successful model who had an accountant who, through some shady tricks, stole all of her money. And one of the few assets he left her was a detective agency she had purchased, I think, is kind of a tax write-off situation. And when she went there to liquidate it, she saw it was being run by David Addison, portrayed by Bruce Willis. And he persuaded her to keep it and to keep it running as a going concern. And the two of them obviously had an attraction to each other. Uh, and uh, the episodes featured them bantering and quipping back and forth as they solve the mysteries that came in through the Blue Moon Detective Agency. So, what? Tell us, tell me about what this show like meant in the 1980s. Like, what was what was like the was this a show like a water cooler show? Everyone was talking about like what what was it? Uh, it was a water cooler show 
it was very popular. Everybody was talking about it. Uh, Willis and Shepard had uh, incredible sexual chemistry back and forth. Uh, the writing was sharp and clever. It was a throwback to an old style of movie making. It felt like uh, an old movie, even the episodes uh, other than the one we're about to watch. We, we uh, did watch it, Kevin. <laughs> I think the moonlight is getting to you. The one we're about to discuss. Uh, I remember, I think it was in December of uh, 85, Bruce Willis appeared on uh, Late Night with David Letterman. And they played a clip from Moonlighting. And when he set up the premise of the clip, even before they played the clip, people started applauding. And I remember Letterman saying at the time, I think this is the only time people have ever applauded before a clip. Just everybody loved this show. What did you think of this show back in the 1980s? I was a huge fan. I was lining up to uh, get a glimpse of the stars. And uh, no, I wasn't alive then. So what was the uh, mystery in this episode? So I think, um, as somebody who's only seen one other episode of Moonlighting and really enjoyed it, I think that uh, that this episode uh, concerns a mystery about uh, a you know old, uh, intriguing case of murder uh, where a couple uh, killed the woman's husband. On the one hand, this is a mystery that this this kind of case uh, this episode delves into the mystery of which party in that murder was more culpable. But I really think the mystery here is how men and women perceive each other and heterosexual men and women interacting with each other and just baffling each other. And you see it from the guy's perspective and you see it from the lady's perspective. I think that's the real mystery here. That's the deeper mystery. Is that something you want to elaborate on now or as we go through the meat... Let's unfold it. Let's un- let's unfold it as we we talk about the meat of this episode, and I think it'll become apparent. But I'm going to throw out that thesis to start with. Okay. Uh, the episode starts uh, a bit in a bit of an unusual fashion with an appearance from uh, Orson Welles. <laughs> I love this. Uh, uh, Orson Welles was not looking well. He was selling wine badly. <laughs> Champagne. <laughs> You ever see those French champagne commercials he did before he died? Paul Masson? Yeah. So no wine before it's time. In this case, he's not looking well because he died a few days later. Yeah. Oops. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't look that bad, honestly. He looked pretty bad. If you said, okay, he's days away from death, I wouldn't have. I would have picked that that wine commercial. I wouldn't have picked this. Mm. He seemed happy to be there. He was there to uh, explain that uh, the show was going to have long black and white sequences because the network was afraid that people would think something was wrong with their TVs. Uh, Wells always said that uh, people would bring him in uh, to add a touch of class Mm. to a little bit of a sleazy or disreputable product. (laughs) And so perhaps he thought that's what was happening here. He was someone whose heart was in his own projects and he would do anything he could to make money so he could make his own films. I mean, at this point in his life, was that still a potential? I, he was trying to wheel and deal and make movies his entire life. Oh, God bless him. He was very passionate uh, about his projects and his movies. Um, what, what, why bring in Orson Welles, though? I mean, what does he mean to, to the... The film noir genre, which which this episode is really drawing upon. I think they're trying to look for someone who would uh, come in and shoot something for them who had some kind of a link to old movies and film noir. Uh, Wells did do a couple of film noirs that were considered classics. Uh, the Stranger, Touch of Evil. Mm-hmm. It was fun to see him. It was fun to see him. A bit sad that he... Uh, he was so near death, and in fact, he died uh, after he filmed this, but before the episode actually aired. Was this the last like thing he ever did? Yes. This is the last. so he didn't do like a thing a few days later. No, he did this and he died. Wow. It was very sad. Yeah, it was. Um, and then we jump into this kind of creepy old nightclub, and it's a kind of a very cool intro because you're seeing 
you're, you know, I'm seeing, uh, what am I on LSD? You're, you're hearing the voices, <laughs> you're seeing voices and touching colors. You're, you're hearing the voices of seemingly like a band performing and people sort of yelling back and forth. And that's a bit of foreshadowing about what we're going to get into. But, uh, uh, then we, then we open with our, uh, our, our central couple, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard. What are they doing? Arguing as usual. What are they arguing about? Uh, they're arguing because they have just been working on an adultery case or a, a possible adultery case where a man has hired them to follow his wife because he doesn't trust her. And Sybil Shepard says she's tired of doing these sorts of cases. And what's Bruce Willis's point of view? Everything's infidelity. Their their whole their whole their whole business model requires infidelity to happen because that's a lot of the work that private detectives do. So he says, thank God for infidelity. Thank God for people not trusting each other. Is this the sort of thing you meant when you talked about the sexes perceiving things differently? Um, well, I mean, they're all constantly at loggerheads. I, I, I take that, that is just the mode that these characters exist in. Yeah. Yeah. They're very like snap, 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 snap. But then like, smolder because we love each other really um i think it's more of like i think it's more of like i think we get more into, into that in the in the in the dream sequences that occur not not so much that that felt like more like these are these are their different personalities but the sexist stuff happens in, in so at this point space. you didn't think the different positions they were taking had anything to do with their genders i mean maybe the stereotypical man's view would be like oh something stupid and then you know the woman would have a more reasonable <laughs> point but um well, it sounds like you might be a bit of a sexist yes <laughs> i wear the label proudly <laughs> uh i'll be curious to, I'll, I'll be curious to hear what your take on some of this is as a, I, as a I th- man. I think I can guess what your take is going to be. Oh, what what do you guess my take is going to be, Kevin? I, I think you might be sympathetic to the point of view propounded by Miss Shepard. Uh, does that mean you're a big Bruce Willis stan? Are you gonna are you gonna tell me to yippee kai fuck off motherfucker? I oh god, get just get me out of here. That was so lame. <laughs> I'm so unfunny. Okay, so so what are you are you I mean are, do you generally think you cleave to Bruce Willis's point of view? Because you're a fella. Your guys are in the fellas club. <laughs> I, I think I would agree with what you said that at this point, their points of view aren't necessarily tied to their gender. No, I, it's, this just feels like Bruce Willis is a, you know, salt of the earth fella who wants to make a buck doing private detective stuff. So obviously he's going to have a very, very pragmatic view about infidelity as, as being a source of business. And um, Miss Shepard is coming into this as a former model who doesn't really like this kind of seamy lifestyle and um, is, uh, you know, kind of repulsed by it. So that 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 didn't feel gender specific. OK. So what happens when they uh, meet their client at this uh, old nightclub? Uh, I mean, all, all this stuff is pretty un- unimportant, but basically he's sleazy that we go through it. The important thing is that they then speak to a fella who mentions that. This nightclub isn't just some old dump. This is the flam- is what, the pink flamingo. The flamingo cove. The pl- it's flamingo cove, baby. And you know what that means, Kevin. What does that mean? It means this must be where the, the famous flamingo cove murder happened. Of course, of course. Who could forget? Bruce Willis is like, oh, the flamingo cove murder happened here at the flamingo cove? Who could have guessed? Oh, I was, I, we're, we're Bruce Willis, though. Right, because we would be like, "Oh yeah, this is this is here are all the facts." And yeah, he was all excited about it. Yeah, he was like, creepy and excited, and that's basically us in a nutshell. Just so, what what did they learn about the murder at this point? All that is sort of sketched out in this conversation um, is that um, a murder happened here. The perpetrators were a woman who was the like lead singer for the club band. Um, the trumpet player and the, and the trumpet player who was her lover. Who was the victim? The victim uh, of this dastardly couple was the woman's husband, who was a clarinet player. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically, that's all you know. It was. Were there any other details that were supplied? That was it. That oh was no! It. We mentioned that we learned at this point that 
both the singer and the trumpet player end up going to the electric chair and For the being, final encore <laughs> being executed and before they died each one insisted that the other was more culpable than they and of course now we know that now we know willis and shepherd are going to continue that argument in the present day yes what are their positions well naturally Willis thinks that the man must have been lured in by some femme fatale. Some siren. Some siren. The siren song drove him to murder. And uh, Shepard believes that some nice housewife was basically seduced and used by a uh, sleazy uh, trumpet player. So they, they they fall along gender lines in terms of what party... They want to take up after. And, and Willis says that uh, Sybil Shepherd is sexist to just automatically assume that the man was the guilty party with no other facts. And he, and he is, let me stress this, he is deeply wrong to say that. Why? Look at crime statistics. <laughs> Look at crime <laughs> statistics. Who's murdering people? Gender-wise, who's, murder, who's murdering? Who is murdering people in terms of you know, if you were basing it on sex, men, 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 men are murdering people. So Sybil was right. Bruce, sorry, take a seat. You're wrong. You're wrong. It's not sexist to say that men are crazy and need help. <laughs> and this was probably, frankly, more true in the 1940s. <laughs> men are just, men, I mean, like. I mean, watch a 1940s film and like think about the creepy and crazy energy some of these male actors are giving off. And I mean, like that must have been just a nightmare to deal with. But anyways, so I was I didn't think Sybil was sexist for assuming that the male was more culpable. That doesn't mean that women are incapable are incapable of a heinous, heinous acts of violence or even manipulating men into doing their bidding. I'm not saying that that absolutely happens. Isn't it all credible? Isn't it all plausible in a case like this? Uh, the female could have lured and manipulated a fellow into murdering her husband for her own purposes. That is always a possibility. That's always a possibility. That happens today. That's a that's a thing that happens. However, if we're talking about assuming who's culpable based on very little other information, you know, if if she wants to assume that the guy was kind of crazy which I think you'd have to be in order to murder somebody, and he's the one who actually seemingly did the deed itself, then I don't think she was making sexist assumptions. I think she was she was playing the numbers. That's not sexist. That's just that's the way thing that's the way the world works. That of course I think both of them were foolish for um getting into a hot Reddit like debate about a case without having any other information other than the very broad sketch. So, but I guess this was pre-internet days, so that's what people did when they wanted to talk. talk. They were like, hey, the- remember, ha- do you half remember this one random thing? Oh, here are like two very like small details. Let's just go at it. That's what we did back in the 80s. That, that was the 80s in a nutshell. That's why it turned out so bad. Now things get a little, things get a little trippy from here because after this uh, kind of fight, uh, Sybil gets all She gets incensed. upset. She gets hot. Mm. She goes home and she kicks off her shoes, which I've seen Anya do. Yeah, I sometimes kick off my shoes violently and it always ends disastrously. So I related. She has a drink. She's furious. She falls asleep. And we have the first of our two dream sequences. And it's in gorgeous black and white. And it just looks fantastic. This is such a cool idea. I want to say right now, this episode is awesome. If you like film noir... It's great. It looks great. Uh, it's it's very creative, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So I, I really loved this, and I loved the look of it. They really captured that old kind of classy style. And apparently it would have been cheaper for them just to shoot on regular film or video and then just show it in black and white. But they were worried that, for one thing, well, if we did that, maybe the network would just show it in color. And number two, they thought it would look better with actual black and white film. So they spent the extra money and shot it on real black and white film. Yeah, the, the this show in general just feels like, from what little I've seen, feels like it was made by people who cared about storytelling and cared about 
doing things cre- in a creative and different way. And it looks magnificent. Yeah, it looks I can't stress that enough. Mwah. Chef's kiss. Mwah. Um, so th- this is a shepherd's version of what happened. Um, and in it, she plays at first the part of a, a dutiful, encouraging wife. What do we see her do to start out with, Kevin? Uh, her husband is playing his uh, clarinet. He is an okay clarinet player, not a great clarinet player, but adequate. And she says, by gum, you're great. She's really giving him a lot of support. And in dialogue, it comes out that he has been in the band for a while without getting uh, a raise in pay. In fact, he hasn't even wasn't even able to go off to fight in the war. So perhaps he's not as masculine as some of the other fellas, mm-hmm. including one fella in particular who we will meet very soon, a fella named Bruce Willis. <laughs> now, Anya Kane. <laughs> We'll have none of that. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, while the band is rehearsing the uh, song Blue Moon, a fun shout out to the uh, uh, the detective agency in the show, Willis saunters in with his, his trumpet, or his cornet, as they called it. And he is immediately smitten with Miss Shepard. He is oogling her in front of her husband who's kind of an idiot in this, in this version. Yeah, in fact, he even invites uh, Bruce Willis to join in their special uh, pre-show rehearsals that previously had just been him and uh, Sybil Shepard. I mean, which is just like, what? Like, Does this guy have like some kind of weird fetish? Like, <laughs> who wants something to happen? And not, no, no kink shaming, if that's your thing. That's great. But this guy just seemed kind of like very clueless and... His wife was obviously uncomfortable with this kind of creepy dude, and he just kind of was like, come into our lives. What could go wrong? Murder me. <laughs> um, and uh, Then Bruce Willis hangs around outside, and uh, when she comes out, he and she start having some tense dialogue well they have a big successful rendition of blue moon for the for the audience and they they uh, actually start playing off one another uh because willis is doing solo work and uh uh shepherd is complimenting this with her singing so they're they, they make a great team for the the band and that's why the husband steps in and says hey practice with us from now on you guys are great together da 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 yeah, they, they they after some tense dialogue in which uh, Shepard asserts that she does not care for this Bruce Willis character, they naturally start making out. Yeah, so it gets steamy. Yes, it's very steamy. And they start an affair. They start an affair, and then we cut to two weeks later, and Sybil Shepard is revealing she has some regrets about this. Uh, maybe it's time to stop. And Bruce Willis starts talking about dreams and stuff. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to give her up. Doesn't want to give his, up his dreams. He says, "If you stop dreaming, then you're just wasting eight hours a night." Such a romantic. Yes. What happens next? Moida most foul. Um, the uh, the two lovers get together and hatch up a scheme that is mostly in this version driven by Bruce Willis. He wants Jerry, the husband, out of the way so he can have Sybil all to himself. She is against it. She states that she is against it, but he will not take no for an answer. He's going to kill her husband, and she's going to be his lady. Um, So they get together for a uh, supposed practice, and uh, what happens next? Uh, the the practice that they're getting, they're having is up on some... Uh parapet is that what it's called yeah like a catwalk like a catwalk up up above the stage and uh bruce willis uh starts making uh it's clear he's going to kill the husband and sybil shepherd does not stop him she just says to her husband i love you i love you and then uh, bruce willis beats him to death with hit the man's own clarinet Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's as simple as that. She does not try to stop it. Um, and, and Bruce Willis is obviously so obviously going to kill the guy. He's like, 
you know, Jerry, don't you think that you'd do anything if you really wanted something, even if you had to wash blood off your hands the next morning? And Jerry's like, yeah, man, I get it. <laughs> yeah, of course. We've all had those days, brother. I mean, like, We're, we're all adults here. Jeez. We know how it is. Jerry, run. They... And after he dies, uh, they leave him on the catwalk, but they, they rig it so that when some scenery is lifted later on during the performance, it would cause his body to fall off the catwalk and tumble onto the stage. And again, during this scene where Shepard is singing and uh, the the folks who man the scenery are kind of pulling on these pulleys and for some reason something's stuck and you know the body's about to come falling down. I mean, just the whole thing looks gorgeous. They really nailed this noir look. It's just beautiful. Um, and of course, inevitably, Jerry's body tumbles onto the stage uh, it happens while Shepard is singing. Mm -hmm. She's singing kind of demurely. She's looking very sad. Oh, she's very, very sad. Yeah, she she loved this man, you know, but I don't know why she let him be killed. She she you know what's interesting to me, and I'll talk more about this later. But in her version, she has very little agency. Men are doing things. This man is doing something to her. And in Bruce Willis's version, he has very little agency. So it's like both. Both groups are kind of like putting the most agency on the other person, which I guess makes sense when you're talking about like who committed this murder. You don't want yeah. the agency, <laughs> but it's kind of funny. Um, and so she screams, you know, at, 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 when, it, when it comes down. Then next thing you know, she's at home recovering from this shock. And the police come in and they start bringing up little Columbo-like details in the story. They don't seem quite to add up. And then she ends up shortly thereafter being arrested. And we learn that Bruce Willis has ratted them both out. Mr. Big Romantic. He told her about dreams. He told her about passion. It didn't mean a goddamn thing to him. What? <laughs> <laughs> yes, when the chips were down, he did anything he could to save his own skin. And he didn't even save his own skin. He just wrote the death warrant for the both of them. It's like he, it's like, I guess like that's maybe in this episode what they posit to be like a woman's worst fear. It's like this guy who's like, I want you and only you. I'm so passionate about you. Like you're my dream. Turns out those were just a bunch of empty words and he is not going to support you. And in, in this case, he's actually going to actively screw you over and send you to the electric chair. So that's the end of dream number one. Yes. Should we now talk about dream number two, and then we can contrast and discuss yeah. the, the ne gender stuff? Next, we uh, flash to Mr. Bruce Willis's dream, and uh, it's going to take a bit of a different tone. Basically, Willis joins the orchestra, kind of starts off in a similar place, um, and he's kind of more of a thoughtful guy. You're hearing his dialogue. He's talking, you know, he's not a perfect guy, but he he knows how to play the trumpet well, and he's excited for this new job. And he has a lot of voiceovers, which I think you liked. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's very voice. It's a, one of those voiceover-y type noirs. Um, and, and a certain someone catches his eye in this first uh, practice that he attends with the band. Of course, it's Miss Sybil Shepherd. The two of them exchange some quips. And it's clear there there is some heat between them. Oh yeah, and of course, throughout this dream, she's dressed much more provocatively than she was in uh, Miss Shepherd's dream. And also, the song she sings is a lot more lively and uh, sexual in nature. And it's interesting, Blue Moon. You left me. It, the, she sings Blue Moon in, in her dream. Blue Moon, you saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. Like that's very much about like loneliness and like an emotional connection being had between two people. What did she sing in Bruce Willis's? It's, it's, it's basically something like I wrote it down. The lyrics were pretty funny. I told you I love you. Now get out. <laughs> I told you I love you. Now get out. That's what I say to you every morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh you know much more of a kind of like flippant you know you know I'm gonna screw you over song basically. Yeah. I'm trying to give you uh, at least the appearance of what you want. Words of love, not just go. You got what you just get out of here. Okay, sure. Bye.
Finally, now we can talk honestly. <laughs> Another change in this is her, Bruce, uh, Sybil Shepherd's husband has a different character in this one. How is he different in this one? In uh, the first one, Jerry was just a lovely, lovely fella who uh, was very stupid but meant well. In this, he's a total dick. He's a jerk to uh, the other performers. He's definitely a huge jerk to Shepard and just a just a putz. We don't like him. Willis uh, Willis has a lot of fun moments in this in this one uh, where he's like over narrating stuff that we're seeing him doing, where he's like talking about how he's standing in front of an open window, shirtless, playing the trumpet. I mean, which, which would be a goddamn nightmare for all his neighbors, <laughs> frankly. But it becomes clear in Willis's dream that Shepard is playing him pretty early on. Yeah, she starts hinting towards uh, that maybe it would make sense to uh, kill her husband. She's very manipulative. Uh, and it's clear that she's the Machiavellian one in this particular version of the tale. Yeah, like, but not even because like, it's so obvious where she's basically like, it would be great if we got to you know, marry, but uh, women can't get divorces in these days. Like if only something happened to Jerry. <laughs> Like, and like she's clearly trying to goad him into something, but he refuses. He says, "I'm not a, a many things. I'm not a killer." Yes, but things change when one day she comes into a rehearsal with a black eye, mm -hmm. and she leads him to believe that that black eye was caused by Jerry, but is not even clear if that's true. Not clear at all. And it this black eye happens to appear. Right after they had a big blowout about how the, how uh, she was upset with Willis for refusing to commit murder on her behalf, um, so this leads to Willis to finally cave, and his protective instinct comes out, and he agrees to kill uh, Jerry and does so. Although the murder scene plays out quite you know a bit in a, in a similar setting but different manner than in Shepard's dream, basically. Uh, Shepard is watching, smiling, a cold smile. He uh, beats the man with a clarinet and doesn't even remember the actual beating. He just remembers looking down and staring at this broken body and realizing what he's done. But it basically then it, after that, it ends in a similar place where they both get convicted and are going to be executed. Willis is a, is a lot more silly. Where, like, you know, the governor is, like, you know, he, he's sassing the governor, like, I'm not going to vote for him again. And he gets led to the <laughs> led to the chair and, and makes the last request of the long version of Stairway to Heaven. And um, so it's it's definitely a sillier one. And um, and then they just, you know, they, they it, it's a quick ending where the two leads uh, meet up again at work and they kind of re reignite their old argument about uh, who is more culpable. And, so the cycle of bantering begins once more. Yes, and I, I like the line it would, that it was silly uh, that that Sybil says that it was silly for them to get all worked up over a question that neither of them will have the answer to. It's never stopped you and I, Kevin. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We've based our whole uh, lives on. Yeah, this is our whole vibe. So should we uh, compare and contrast or yeah? Analyze? I'd be curious which, which which dream do you think contained the Better relationship. You mean better relationship between Sybil and her husband or the better relationship between uh, Sybil and Bruce? Between Sybil and Bruce. Because obviously she has an unhappy relationship with her husband in both of them because otherwise she wouldn't have been drawn to Bruce Willis in the yeah. first place. Mm -hmm. I guess in one version she's in control and the other version he's in control. Well, I know which one I thought seemed better, but which one did you think seemed better? Better in what way? I'm, I'm like, what, like, which one were you like more like this would be a pleasant relation, more of a pleasant relationship to be in, I guess. Let me think. In the. Uh... Or I guess maybe maybe a better because obviously neither of us wants to be dating anybody who wants to murder anyone, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why are you even analyzing this? Because uh, you're in a perfectly happy relationship <laughs> with somebody. You don't want to get together with a new fella and kill your husband. No. But I, I guess I'm more of asking, like, which relationship gave you less bad vibes? I guess the relationship in the Bruce Willis one. That was my, yes, that was mine too. Because the first one, when it was uh, Sybil's dream, 
she basically didn't like this guy, and it seemed like he was forcing herself himself on her. So it almost felt like a little bit uh, coercive and like rape. Yeah, it was coercive. It was rapey. It was bad vibes. So I I completely agreed. The other one, it seemed like they had fun together. They had fun together, and at least in the beginning, there seemed to be a recognition on both sides. This isn't going to be a big thing. Maybe it'll just be stolen moments in a love affair here and there. It's just going to be sex. It's not going to change our lives. Yes. So when it's, yeah, I just thought that was interesting because I thought Willis's version of the relationship was much more positive, much more, it felt equal, even though she was obviously playing him and I thought it. I thought that was just kind of an interesting thing because the first one it was just almost uncomfortable because you're like, "Ooh, this guy's this guy's really creepy." Right, but do you think it was coercive? I think it was. No, not really. I think it was like it felt more like somebody going back and kind of being like, "Oh, I was forced into something," and obviously she reacted with silence or with inaction whenever it counted. You know, so clearly part of her really wanted him. And, and wanted that. But it was just more disturbing to see her so without agency, I think. Whereas like she's kind of getting bandied about by whatever whatever he wants to do. And I thought it was interesting for all the back and forth and arguing over whether it's the man who was really the guilty one or the woman who was really the guilty one. In both versions, both of them were fully morally culpable, culpable in the murder. I think that's the joke, right? Is that like, you know, you can argue about who's to blame, but ultimately, if you have a situation where somebody is beating somebody else to death with a clarinet and in front of you, in front of you, and and, then the other person there is not doing anything and, and, and helps cover it up, then they both should be on trial for murder. Both Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard are incorrect when they're kind of trying to win the moral high ground here. Did you have uh, any feelings as towards which scenario felt more likely to you? It was kind of a mix, right? I felt like the truth lay somewhere in, be- in between both scenarios because life is messy and people people are messy and maybe you feel like you're a good supportive wife to somebody and then you kind of pull this or maybe you feel like you're just kind of a, a normal guy who would never kill and then you kill somebody. It felt like something that was in in the middle and that neither side was giving you the full story. I thought it was significant that in both cases, it was never a matter of like who physically killed this man. It was always Bruce Willis was the one to kill the husband physically. And it was always while Sybil Shepard watched and did not intervene. Yeah, so it's like we saw how everything played out in a way. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's such a great, like metaphor for like anybody looking at cold cases like you can have the basic facts but especially for something that is obscure or sort of lost to time you can never really get all the the different shades and emotions and motives and little details that you'd want to actually understand what happened another thing i found uh interesting uh, in a lot of noir there's a lot of a moralistic uh, attitude towards sex and it seemed in both versions of this everything was fine until a sexual desire entered the picture and then once they started having sexual desire for one another and acting on it everything went to hell yeah, the, the noir universes should have just installed like sex alarms like dang, dang, like everyone run <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna be a there's gonna be a plot there's gonna be shenanigans afoot now because it's like basically like the equivalent of like contracting some horrible disease, falling in love or falling in lust in, in these in these stories. Because like you're gonna die or somebody else is gonna die and it's gonna be a mess. But at the same time, it's like have your cake and eat it too. Because while these noir films make you think sexual desire is the first step on the road to hell, it also invites you to enjoy the sexual desire of the characters. Let's watch these characters make out and have sex and say witty, sensual things to each other. But isn't that always like how, you know, moralizing perverts act, right? Where it's like, oh, doesn't this smut just drive you crazy? Mm-hmm. And like, you're, oh, like, well, yeah. I mean, that's like, it's like you get off on moralizing. 
or 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 I don't know. Was it I, I I don't know if it's like a chicken or egg situation. Was it a situation where they wanted to portray real sexy sex stuff, but they ended up having to make it more dark because there was no m- mode in the culture for them to portray sex as just like a positive thing. They could do sexy stuff, but we okay, but we got to make it a little bit dark at the end because nobody can, especially women can can you know enjoy having sex and then have a good you know have good stuff happen to them maybe there was just no way to tell like sex positive stories at that time yeah that's an interesting uh point and i I also you were talking earlier about how in bruce willis's version he had no agency and in simple shepherd's version she also had a little agency what do you make of that now that we've talked a little bit more about the dreams well i guess it's it's um it's sort of breaking down as as far as the sort of finger pointing that went on before the executions, it's sort of breaking down that. It's saying, like, I was just a dupe or I was just dragged along by this crazy man. You know, it was the other person. But maybe there's an element of when sexual desire is involved, it, it's, it, it evokes a feeling of powerlessness in a person. Like, I am powerless to not feel... <laughs> To, you know, uh, 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 regarding my feelings of, of sexual desire with this person. And they've taken away some of my power so by by being so sexy. They're both sexually attracted to each other in, in both stories. And they're basically saying, like, that that made me act in a way that I normally would not have act, acted. Do you think that's true? Do you think sexual desire perverts behavior or uh, reveals character? Well, I mean, listen... Life's not a noir. <laughs> Isn't it? No. <laughs> um, noirs take a very negative look at sex for the most part. And I think I think maybe so, in some ways I understand like the powerlessness of like, you know, when you're really into somebody and like you can't, you know, you can't control that. But maybe your goal shouldn't be to quote unquote control it. Maybe you should just try to act upon your sexual desires in a way that's healthy and, and, and fine for you and everyone else. Right. Instead of trying to just stifle it or like, Oh, I know I'm like, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. You know, it may be in a, maybe in a society or in a world where people are really constrained in what they can do sexually, you know, more so than what's like moral, but like when, when social, when social constructs are like so constricting, I guess maybe feeling helpless is much more of a a negative experience. But if you're in a situation, whether it's just your own, you know, your own life or, or, you know, more open society, maybe that's a better outcome for everyone. I don't know. I feel like I'm just rambling. Yeah. And generally speaking, isn't it, this sounds counterintuitive, but generally speaking, isn't it almost comforting to feel powerless? Because if you're powerless, you don't have to take responsibility for your choices or for the consequences of those choices because it's not your fault. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's just taking sex out of the equation. That's just anybody. Like, you get two four-year-olds, like, who smashed the cookie jar? Like, not me. She made me do it. Like, that's just how humans justify things. I thought, what What do you think, what do you think that the, this sort of split-screen of an episode shows about relationships between, you know, heterosexual couples. I think in moments of ambiguity, it's very human to relate to and empathize and sympathize with the person in the situation who looks most like you. And so in this case, the man empathizes with the man and tries to rationalize away the man's guilt and the woman does the same for the woman. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, I think that makes sense. What do you think about, I mean, if we can, if we can maybe, since, you know, we are interested in mysteries, if we can go deeper into the the central mystery of this episode, which is like, what exactly happened in this crime? What do you think? What do you think happened? What do you think is most likely? I, I think both versions basically told the same story. They just told it differently in which two people entered into an adulterous affair and working in concert killed the woman's husband. They're both guilty. I think there's no way the woman 
I mean, that's not true. There is a way, <laughs> but I think there's, I think it seemed unlikely to me see, seeing both stories. I think it was unlikely to me that the woman was so passive in the murder. It, it, the, the evidence seemed to point against that at the same time. I think, I think that's what she played up in that version. I think what Bruce Willis played up was his like, Oh man, I would never have done this. You know, like I wouldn't, I can't believe I did this. I blacked out the actual murder. That seemed phony to me. And that seemed like this is a guy, you know, ultimately to me, even if someone manipulates you really good, if you're like an adult and you, you, your brain is functioning totally normally, like if you get played that badly, like what do you think? I guess, I guess maybe this is kind of a question that's pretty noir specific, but like so much of noir is like sexy lady manipulated me into doing something heinous and now I have to pay for it. Basically. Is that a pretty common noir trope? Yeah, definitely. Like what, what do you make of that? Is that, is that sort of like, I mean, and, 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 and that's what both of these portions of the episode are basically like sexy X made me do bad thing and now I'm suffering for it like in noirs it's usually the lady though who is the instigator and who is um the so you know the siren leading a man astray there's a lot of fear of women yeah what do you what do you make of that is is yeah it's like women are a self-destructive vice it's like in the way indulging in women is just as dangerous and reckless as indulging in alcohol or drugs. Yeah. I mean, having seen a lot of, I think maybe a bit more of these noirs than I have. Um, I don't know. Do you agree? Are women a vice? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I'm more of curious, like, like, what does that say about the society in which a lot of these tropes were formed in? Uh, I I think society now and certainly back then is very anti-female. And I think one of the reasons why uh, women did not receive the same uh, educational or uh, business or economic opportunities as men is because men, for to a certain extent, were scared of them. Keep them in their place. Why do you think men have been scared of women for so long? If a woman is, gets educated and smart and is able to go out and hold down a job and support herself, what does she need a man for? She doesn't. And if a man can hold a job and can support himself, he still wants to get laid. So he still needs the woman. Mm -hmm. So it's better to create a situation where you don't let the woman be independent and self-supporting so she needs you. And so a, a, a not a woman who is smart and crafty enough to manipulate someone into committing murder and also is sexy enough and, and sexually empowered and and confident in her sex, you know, that's a that's a goddamn nightmare for 1950s America. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that, that's terrifying because that's that's somebody who can subvert some of those power structure she's not looking for a man to take care of her she's looking for a man to take care of her problem which is a man which is a man she's she's pitting them off against each other so she can destroy us all as she should (laughs) femme fatale for president (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting and so like in a way bruce willis's was more of the classic noir structure of like sexy lady lady asked me to kill her husband and it was interesting to see shepherd's version which was kind of like what it might look like if everything was gender flipped like kind of nice uh simple lady uh, gets roped into a murder scheme by like a sexy guy but what's interesting is to me um bruce willis as the femme fatale character just came off as kind of threatening. Yeah. Like sketch sexually threatening, like he's forcing himself on her to a certain degree. Not not in a way like that they're I, I like I don't see her enjoying that. So Do you imagine some women might find that sort of thing exciting? Yes. Definitely. And that's okay, you know? Um, but 
it, it definitely read as it, it definitely kind of read as maybe red flags, maybe just because that's a subversion, having the characters flipped. Yeah, I guess there, there was a point where he's like getting close to her and saying he's going to kiss her or whatever. And he makes a point of saying, you're not telling me to stop. You're not telling me to go away. And she kisses him. Yeah. At that point. Like, it's not like a situation where he's like, you didn't say no. I mean, like, it's like she kisses him. They, you know, she's clearly really into him. And, you know, initiates a, a sexual relationship and an affair with the him. And so he's pushing for it, like, verbally and, like, uh, all that and, like, and, 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 and going for it. But, like, she's the, like, it never feels like something that she's not into. Mm-hmm. You know, she's going, she's going with it, too. But, like, he's, it seems like he's almost, like, pushing it further. Like, we need to get rid of the husband now. We need to, we're going to follow our dreams, da, da, da. And she's more of in it for the sex. Yeah, because I guess in Sybil Shepherd's version, the implication, her husband was not able to go to war. So maybe he's not as masculine as other men. So maybe he's not able to perform sexually as well as other men. So she's never had that before. So, so it's an interesting, I mean, yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder, like, can you think of any like actual noir films where like the quote unquote like femme fatale by that I mean like the sexy instigator is a guy and the and the main character is a lady? There must be. I I think the I think the the femme fatale I mean like by definition has to be a woman you know but I think also it's like the whole point of is is that it is a woman because it's like. That's what's disruptive. That's what's scary. That's what's sexy. But that's also what is like maybe gonna really fuck things up for everybody. Because it's not like it's not like the femme fatale is a figure in these films that is supposed to be like hated necessarily. You're not supposed to be like oh they're you know you're supposed to be titillated you know, and like oh they're real sexy wow mm-hmm. oh but that guy's life ended really badly because of this so gotta watch those skirts. <laughs> yeah, and the femme fatale doesn't work unless the men watching the movie feel like they would be tempted to in that situation. You know, this might be a little personal, but I, I was thinking one of the uh, implicit messages in this episode was that because of their genders and the filters imposed by their genders, men and women see and interpret things uh, differently. Do you think there are cases where when we've looked at old cases, uh, that you and I have looked at things differently because of our gender? Yes. <laughs> Can you give some examples? I don't have a specific idea in mind, but I think in general, I tend to operate from a place. I think we were talking about this the other day. I tend to operate in the world and, and like in looking at crimes from a place of like maybe stronger overt anger about things because, you know, I just, it's, we live in a rape culture. So many heinous things get done to women all the time in the name of in the name of male predators getting getting off sexually. And and it really makes me very angry. It seems like even with a lot of, you know, good advances in terms of society, we uh there's a long way to go and there's and there's just so much wrong and you know Men don't seem to kind of realize that, you know, the fear people, the fear people who aren't like them live under, you know, whether it's women, you know, and I I'll also include like trans women, uh, non-binary people, you know, like when, when, it, when you're, you know, when you're a cis guy or especially a, a cis straight guy, it's like you don't have that sense of fear and I think anger that the fear sparks, you know? So, so when I look at like old crimes and old mysteries, I kind of come to it with that anger of like, like, okay, people are, people are getting murdered up in here. So some like serial rapist could get off. That's great. Like just pisses me off. <laughs> what do you think? Is there any, is there any time that you felt like there was maybe a divide in between how we saw things? Uh, I, I think what you say is, is right. That is a uh, male. I don't really fully understand what it's like to live is uh, in the rape culture, what that's like for a woman. And so maybe that's uh, affected uh, how I perceive things. It also might be more of my personality to just be more pissed off than you in general. <laughs> but I think that's, I think that's part of it. 
maybe in terms of what cases interest you sometimes you tend to be more interested in like a puzzle like what like this what, like how can we figure out this case and i think i tend to be more interested in like like maybe in some ways and and this is maybe why true crime has you know proliferated around women in particular but like oh i could see myself as this victim you know let let's uh, you know i want to know more about it you know, maybe maybe in some sick way because it's like I don't want it to happen to me or I want to be more informed so I can make safer choices or, or whatever. I mean, that's all it's a I think there's been a lot of ink spilled on why true crime is is kind of like a, you know, a, a self-soothing mechanism for for women. You know, listening to that makes you feel a little bit safer, or better in a strange way. So it does that for you? Maybe in some ways, yeah, sometimes. I think I also, like you, want to figure stuff out, so it's not entirely that, but maybe there's more of an element of that in me, whereas I, I don't think that's a factor for you. No. Why do you think we still like noir? What about it continues to hold so much appeal to the culture? I mean, this this episode came out in 85, so, you know, a number of years after the noir boom, film noir boom. Um, but even today, I mean, I love this episode. I'm a, I'm a fan of film noir. So are you. And, pe- you know, lots of people still love it. What, what What's the lasting appeal? I, I think for one reason, uh, we both raved about how beautiful this episode looked. I think noir has a certain visual style that's very appealing. It simply looks good. Uh, and that really sucked both of us in. What about you? What, I mean, in terms of the storytelling, though, it's not all... I mean, yes, I agree. Lots of really incredible shots come to mind throughout film noir. But, like, the stories... I mean, what we've been talking about today is kind of like, okay, here's, like, why noir is sexist. And, it, I mean, it certainly is. I'm not going to apologize for that. It just... that's That's the nature of it. A lot of it, I, I think you know. going going back to the time of ancient Greeks and ancient Greek tragedy, people enjoy stories about powerless people who perhaps make one misstep, and that fatal flaw or that fatal mistake leads to their doom. There is something oddly satisfying about that, about watching a person's life unravel because of a simple of a single misstep. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think I think that's yeah, it's like a tragedy in some ways, yeah. Um I think we just I think we maybe this is kind of similar to your answer about the the look, but I think we like the vibe. I think we like the vibe of like ooh, like it's like all smoky and sexy and oh, you know, it's all shadowy, steamy. It 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 evokes something that is very appealing to a lot of people it evokes like a feeling and like a nostalgia for something that never was. And it seems simpler. The world is so complicated and noir has, it kind of has, gives you the illusion of a complicated world with complicated conspiracies, but it is hard. It's very simple, easy to follow, easy to understand. It's always the skirts. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I guess there's some film noirs that are like, you know, like the third man. Would you say that's a film noir? How do you define film noir? I don't know. Like, I'm just, I guess it's like, I don't know. I'm not a film expert. (laughs) But like, old timey kind of dark film about something. Often, often with kind of a sexy component. Is there a sexy component in the third man? I guess they all like that one lady. But, I mean, no, I wouldn't say. I think that's more of like a bromance noir. According to, I just Googled it. Film noir is a style or genre of film marked by a mood of pessimism, fatalism, and menace. That's what I, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So it's not all about the sexy films. It can be, it can be stuff that doesn't have sexy people, you know, or, you know, sex. The term was originally applied to American thriller or detective movies made by directors such as Orson Welles, Fritz Lang, or Billy Wilder. Cool. Okay. 
So there could be different types of film noir, but a lot of film noir is definitely obsessed with sex. And I guess maybe part of the appeal is uh, we're obsessed with sex. You and I personally or society at large? Both. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, I thought this this episode of Moonlighting really captured the spirit of film noir, you know, in, in so many ways. And it was a real treat to watch. So I uh, I, I really loved it. There's no, no eclipse here. Moonlight shone bright. I'm sad. Noir, film noir may oftentimes um, show nightmares, but... But this episode of Moonlighting was definitely a dream. This dream sequence really rung my bell. <laughs> is that a sexual thing? I don't know. Yes, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore and at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up hotmail accounts in the early 2000s. So all of those spell out two as T O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.